everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live. Well, tonight we're a little bit less than live. <laughs> um, it is New Year's Eve. We want to wish you all a wonderful New Year and every blessing um, as we enter into 2022. Um, we want to ask that God's blessing be with you all, and we want to thank you all for joining us and supporting us this past year as we've done Bible Ask Live. Now, our show tonight is a little bit different. Uh, we are actually going to do a top seven of our most popular questions of this year. So we, um, we're not exactly live tonight, but you are more than welcome to leave comments down below um, in our comment section and let us know how you're doing. And don't forget that if you have questions um, as we resume our regular uh, shows in the weeks to come, uh, every Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, be sure to um, put your questions in our website. It's Bible Ask Live or BibleAsk.org forward slash live. And that's where you can um, submit your questions that you, if you'd like them featured here on our show, as well as plugging in any questions you might have on our Facebook page or our YouTube page. We're more than happy to answer those questions for you guys. And so we just want to wish you all a blessed new year. And um, we just thank you all for your support and continued support as you um, as you hear and an hear our answers to these questions and and um, as we just try to serve God with, with this ministry and we just our our biggest support we would like is your prayers as well as liking and sharing our content we really appreciate that so I wish you all a blessed New Year and again um, enjoy our top seven questions from this past year of Bible Ask Life. Okay, so this is where Jigar is asking, can I ask help please? Because this Bible verse put me into panic, anxiety, and worrying. It's in the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because lately I rejected Jesus or the God. Maybe, but I ask forgiveness, confessing and apologizing for those words I said, and I'm still worshiping God and Jesus. This is my question. Can God forgive Christians who rejected the Holy Spirit again and again? But lately they apologize and apologize and continuing worshiping Jesus and their God. I'm really afraid to lose my salvation. I am blaming God for the bad things happening to me because I believe he managed my life. That is why I once said or insult against God just to talk with him. My angry and pain, but lately I still apologize because those words I said against Jesus and God. Well, yeah, we definitely address this, and we'll repeat again. One of the best verses of the whole Bible, right? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful mm -hmm. and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. So, and, he, yeah. Oh, go ahead and finish. No, no. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that, you know, for, especially because this question is coming up a lot, and I know it is a question that a lot of people have. And I just want to say that when you are in the midst of this anxiety and this struggle and this fear and worry about wondering if God can forgive you and if God can love you and for the mistakes you know that you've made in your life, that is the time among all times to remember that God loves you immensely. Like, God loves you so much that he knew you were going to have these struggles. And Jesus went to the cross to take those struggles away from you, to set you free from those struggles. That's how much God loves you. So to think that God can't forgive you in these moments, is to be deceived. God gave everything to be able to have you know His forgiveness and His love for you. That's what He wants. And He just wants you to know that. And, and to know that in every part of your body, of your mind, of your heart, when you are struggling with these things. That is exactly why he went to the cross for you. So, um, don't answer the next question. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I was. <laughs> uh, I hadn't even read ahead yet. <laughs> um, but 
I just really want people to know who are struggling with anxiety or struggling with these kinds of issues, these fears, these concerns. Like this is precisely what Jesus went to the cross for. Precisely. And can I add one last thought on this matter? Yeah. I, that was so beautiful, Wendy. I'm sorry <laughs> to even say anything else because that was very, very true and so so heartfelt and so beautiful. Um, you know, what you're describing here, you know, to my brother who's asking is very similar to me to what Peter went through. Um, do you remember Peter when Jesus, you know, he, you know, he said, you know, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. But then when it came time for Jesus to be crucified, he denied him three times. So when after Jesus was crucified, um, you know, he came to Peter and Peter, you know, had to confess this and, you know, you know, he asked Peter, do you love me three times? And Jesus said, yes, I love you. And so um, he had to come back to Jesus. But when he did, you know, Jesus accepted him, you know, even though he had denied Jesus, you know, in Jesus's most critical hour, he denied him. Um, but yet Peter writes a beautiful verse in the in the book he wrote, Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. And it says, um, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering towards us. God is patient with us, <laughs> even though he because he knows we're gonna mess up and make mistakes, mm -hmm. but is long suffering toward us, patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if you are coming to repentance, you are following God's will. And you God, Jesus says, anybody that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So mm -hmm. as long as you repent, as long as you're coming to Christ, God will not reject you. He will accept you, but you just have to fully and completely repent. Mm -hmm. And there is, like we said, there's no sin that God cannot forgive as long as we confess it and come to him with mm -hmm. him with an open heart. Amen. And yeah, we should keep in mind, like, who is the one that condemns? Who is the one that accuses? <laughs> so <laughs> like <devil>. Revelation... <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about the devil. Revelation twelve ten, it refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the devil's role. And so when we we Christians even start being the accusers, we're not acting like Christ. Because yeah. we're in John eight eleven. what did Christ say to the woman caught in the middle of the act of adultery? Which many of us think is like the worst sin ever next to murder, right? And what did Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Yeah, but go and sin no more. But go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because he wants to be live. <laughs> exactly. And we all know John 3, 16, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, in him shall not perish but ever, have everlasting life. Mm -hmm. The very next verse, though, most people don't know. For mm -hmm. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to deliver the world through mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's God. That's the God we serve. God who is yep. love. Amen. Alright, so Nivek is asking, when Lot's wife was turned into salt for turning back, who turned back to confirm that? Oh, and by the way, before we um, let Faye get into answering the question, just want to say a shout out to Vanessa. Thank you for joining us today from the Philippines. And if you're just tuning in, Please, uh, again, uh, say hi and let us know you're here. We'll, we'll love to uh, say hi back. All right, Faye, what's, what's your thought about uh, Lot's wife turning yeah. back? How do we know that happened? So I always thought about that, honestly, because when you watch the movies, of course, you know, the movies aren't going to depict exactly what happened. But when you watch them, it, it looks like they turn around and they notice that she turned into salt. But that means they would have also seen, you know, uh, the um, Sodom and Gomorrah burning in the background. So it could have been that she was in front of them and turned around and then they noticed that she turned into salt, uh, a pillar of salt. We don't know exactly, but the, the fact of the matter is she's the only one that turned into salt. The fact that nobody else turned into salt, not the two daughters and not Lot himself, um, could be indicative of the fact that they did not look. Sorry, I do have a toddler. 
with me because I'm trying to be <laughs> a multitasker. Um, but so from what we know and from what we can see, the fact that Lot and his daughters did not turn into salt means that they did not look. So she could have just been in front of them or in an area where they are on even next to them when she turned into salt. And then the moment they that, that happened, they looked and saw her, but I'm quite sure that it didn't turn out they didn't turn around and look behind them because they would have turned into salt as well and and just because they didn't look back at that moment doesn't mean that they could never have gone back right at some later point to figure out what happened right yeah that's a good point i never thought about that um it could be that maybe they just ran off and didn't have her once they got to their destination like who, who knows right um but the fact of the matter yeah. is they did not look um, because if they did, they wouldn't be, you know, able to tell the rest of the story. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, they went and lived in a cave nearby and maybe Tina would know that exactly. Um, so they were still in that general area, Lot and his two daughters. So yeah, I figure he probably, he, I wouldn't be surprised if just every year on anniversary, he would go back and cry there at the pillar. Um, and there's some people who actually believe that pillar still is there to this day. You know, then, and you can see pictures. Just look up Lot's wife, Salt Pillar, and you you can see what people think it is the real thing. So mm. they probably could have had a chance. Is that something you? Yeah, interesting question. Is that something you would have done, Jay? <laughs> if something terrible <laughs> happened to Wendy, would you keep going back to that spot? I would be uh, really sad. I probably would never go near that spot. I I probably would keep going back. Oh, really? He's very sentimental. Yeah. He's a very sentimental person. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for that. And to kind of also um, answer the question, um, looking at it biblically, if you go to Genesis chapter 19 um, in the actual story, and you go down to verse, um, let's see, 26, and that's where it says, but his wife looked back from behind him and she, she became a pillar of salt. And it says, and Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the, the plain and beheld and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. So at some point, Abraham did see Sodom and Gomorrah. He wasn't looking back because he wasn't escaping the city, but rather he was looking toward it from another angle. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that if he could have looked in that direction, he could have seen her as a, as a pillar of salt as well. So, um, and that command was given to Lot, his wife and his daughters, and only she, Lot's wife, was the one who was disobedient and suffered the consequences. However, Abraham was able to look um, in that direction and not be turned to a pillar of salt because he had no desire to, you know, his heart wasn't there at all. His, his heart was just longing mm -hmm. for his family to come out. And I think that's kind of the, the whole point of this message is us looking for our family to come out of this wicked world so that they can be saved. And um, I think, yeah, I think that's just kind of, uh, kind of the deeper meaning, I guess, of that story. All right, let's get our next question up here. Cole Matlock is asking, is the book of Revelations written in chronological order of how the events will happen? And yeah, so basically, um, Cole Matlock, I would say, no, it's not written chronologically. Um, like I said, just like the book of Daniel, like there's Daniel 2, which gives you an outline, and then Daniel 7, it goes into further detail, and it just keeps building. It, it repeats and enlarges, and it gives different details. Every single prophecy in Daniel kind of repeats with a different detail um, for basically, like, I would say a different audience or a different... Um, type of thing like in Daniel 8 it's more of detail as far as you know how it relates to um, uh, to God's people or and it has more sanctuary language whereas chapter 7 um, is just kind of like the nature of these nations and how they're gonna behave and then like 11 is these big details same thing with Revelation um, when you look at you know like I said chapters two and three it's more the state of the church what's going to happen in the church and then um, with it when it comes to the seven seals it's talking about historical events um, when it talks about the seven trumpets it's talking about you know bad things basically catastrophe judgments judgments exactly and you know the seven last plagues you know obviously that's all judgment for but that only happens at the end of time so you know it's different types of things that are happening um and the bible's repeating and enlarging so no it's not chronological um it kind of goes back and, and 
repeats just so that you get an idea of like because you know history you know there's always a lot of things going on in the world at the same time like right now yeah. in the united states you know we're blessed you know things are pretty good you know thank god uh, we have freedom and um you know we're not in a state of you know terrible persecution in this country but if you go to other countries you know people are in danger of losing their lives for being a christian and you know it just depends where you're at in the world and what's kind of going on so um that's just something to keep in mind you know just that and there's different people there's god's people that are doing things right now and then there's the devil and his you know people that are doing things in the world right now so it's the Bible is always kind of showing, you know, different aspects of what's going on at the same time. You kind of see that, you know, when you just even look at the story of the Gospels, the four Gospels tell the same story of Jesus, but from different angles. So that's kind of, if you want to put it, think of it that way, uh, the book of Revelation is showing different aspects of history that are both happening at the same time, but kind of going back and repeating. So no, it's not chronological from chapter one to chapter 22, but um, there are um, when it goes through those, you know, like the, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, those are chronological, but not, um, it's not the churches, then the seals that, no, mm -hmm. those can be happening at the same time. I like uh, your comparison to the Gospels where the same thing is being repeated, reiterated, or maybe from different perspectives, four different times. Um, I was going to say it, the way I look at it is like the movie Magnolia. Did you see that? It's from way back in the day, but it followed maybe seven different storylines and it's constantly cutting back and forth between different people, different perspectives, and you might have the same point in time, but then cut through it at, from seven different perspectives. And, and then maybe go to another point in time, cut through that seven different perspectives. So yeah, Revelation is always important to whenever you get into something that there's seven of something identify okay what's this group what is it focusing on what is the common theme of these seven things because that the number seven means completion mm -hmm. or perfection or you know like the week why mm -hmm. is why is it why are there seven days in the week well the seventh day is the completion of the week mm -hmm. and there's so. nothing in nature to point to a seven day week it's just established by god at creation and it's stuck and it's never really been changed i mean i know the french revolution tried to change it to a 10-day week and they they went back <laughs> but the world never accepted it and i i think that's such a a huge thing that points to hey the god of the bible is our creator because there's things that that occur that are only based on what god said and you know the the systems that he implemented like marriage and things like that so yeah i totally agree with you on that so Edwin is asking, when did Satan fall? Before creation or after? That's uh, a great question. I'm also very much a fan of like, what, when did all these things behind the scenes happen? So our first clue is going to be John 8, 44. John 8, 44. And it reads, this is Jesus speaking. It says, and I'm, I'm reading from the NIV, by the way, because I like it worded just a little bit better. It says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So all lies, any lie that ever came, came from him. And where do we see the first lie being spoken? That's Genesis Genesis 3 when the serpent is tempting Eve and saying things like well God didn't say that and you're not going to die um, You know you'll live forever and ever all these are the lies of Satan. He originated these he's the father of these and We even have confirmation of this in Revelation Revelation 12 9 says so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old What's the only old serpent we've ever heard of that's one Genesis and it says, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So there again is confirmation that serpent in the beginning was Satan. So if Satan was there already trying to tempt Eve and bring Eve into evil, we can know for a certainty then that he fell before uh, Adam and Eve did. He was the one who bringing them into it. 
And then if you want uh, even more um, background on Satan's fall, or some people, not sure if this is really speaking about Satan, I believe it is. This is, this is Ezekiel 28 verses 12 to 15 is referring to the king of Tyre. And God says to this person, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And then it goes on to say, um, you know, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I, I established you, you know, so he was closest to God. And it says you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. This is all talking about, um, you know, where God dwells in Zion. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So that right there is describing the fall of Satan itself. Why was the book of Enoch removed from the Bible? That is a good really question. good question. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Um, when it comes to some of the books that were maybe found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and um, I know that some people have said that the book of Enoch was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, if you look at Jewish um, history, no Jews have ever or not no Jews, excuse me. Most Jews, especially those from Israel, haven't um, recognized the book of Enoch as a book that was ever part of the canon or part of you know scripture, except for um, there's a group of Jews who came from Ethiopia and they recognize the book of Enoch. Now, when it comes to the book of Enoch, um, I, I wouldn't say so much that it's inspired or that it should be part of the Bible because um, there are some books that the Bible refers to that are not in the Bible. So like, for example, there's the book of Jasher. So, um, and like in second Samuel 1 18, as well as in Joshua 10 13, they refer to this book of Jasher. Um, and this book, you know, it must have some history, some extra stories, some, you know, something else is in it. However, these books or this book isn't um, at all part of scripture. And so, you know, I think that that kind of goes along with how we are today. You know, there's some really great books out there that help us in our Christian walk, but they're not, you know, they're not inspired. They're not part of, you know, the canon or, or basically the Bible um, because, of some reason or another and so um you know same thing with like the books in the apocrypha they you know these are extra books that um were kind of some people include them such as those in the catholic church they include that as part of the bible um and they have some additional interesting stories but personally i don't <laughs> i don't agree with with um with the books in the apocrypha um and what i'm going to say about the book of enoch is it's a very, you know, I haven't researched it too much, but based on what I've read of the book of Enoch or read about it, um, I don't think it's inspired because to me, some of the things that are in it personally, I think, um, are not in line with scripture. And the thing with the Bible is, um, like it says in Isaiah, you know, to the law and to the testimony, if it doesn't speak according to this word, it is because there's no light in it. And so if it isn't um, cohesive with the rest of scripture, then that's kind of your red flag that, okay, maybe this really isn't part of the Bible. Um, and so when it came to the book of Enoch, um, uh, the first big section is something about the watchers and basically that's talking about certain types of angels and it goes into why some angels fell and some angels may be married with people from the time of Noah and I really when I saw that I had to say you know I really think this is probably why it was not included in the Bible because I don't think that that um, is inspired you know Jesus when he said you know there's the, the story where the the Sadducees, um, you know, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. And so anyways, they uh, were tempting Jesus and they were saying, you know, a woman gets married and doesn't have kids and, um, you know, basically she marries the brother and, um, you know, they never have, um, they never have uh, any kids. So in the resurrection, you know, whose wife is she? And Jesus says, you know, don't you know the scripture? And he says, you know, so the scripture was not anything in the, in the, um, you know, in the New Testament. There was no New Testament at that time. Um, 
but Jesus refers to the Old Testament and says, you know, basically when you um, die, this is in Luke chapter um, 20 and verse uh, 30. Um, uh, 35. Um, he says, But they which shall be accounted worthy shall obtain the world and re resurrection from the dead. Neither marry nor are given in marriage. And in verse 36 it says, Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. And so, basically, you know, Jesus says that, hey, like, don't you know the scripture? Like, angels don't marry they're not given in marriage they can't procreate there there's there's something different about angels they don't have that same relationship that um we do with other people whereas in the book of enoch it talks about um angels marrying people and making the super race where it's you know speaking of that verse in uh genesis chapter six where it says you know the sons of god saw the daughters of men that they were fair and, and married but i really think that what it was talking about the sons of God were God's holy, you know, God's lineage from, you know, the line of Seth saw the daughters of men, you know, like the, uh, the seed of the serpent, you know, the worldly women who were, you know, probably looking, you know, very glamorous, you know, doing themselves up more, um, and, you know, saw that they were fair and, and took them, you know, intermarried basically God's people and, um, uh, people who are not of God. And, you know, just like Jesus says, or in the new Testament, it says, don't be unequally yoked. And so that's what I think, um, it, it's speaking about in Genesis chapter 6. I don't think that um, it's talking about this Nephtali, these angels that married with um, humans. I think that that's not inspired personally. And so that's why I don't think um, the book of Enoch is included in the, in the Bible because it doesn't um, align with scripture, in my opinion. I don't know, Jay, or what yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? No, I totally agree. And I think there's some misunderstandings at times what the Book of Enoch is. And, you know, some people probably think it actually was written by Enoch. And there's, you know, mythology that, you know, he saved a bunch of tablets. They were put in a cave to survive the flood. And that's how civilization was able to survive really quickly. Um, I think Josephus is the one that writes that story. But the Book of Enoch does not claim to be that. And Virtually all scholars I know agree that the book of Enoch was written maybe about 200 years before Jesus came to the earth. Yeah. So it is a really new book. It's an intertestamental book. It came between the Old and New Testament, like as I think you were suggesting that, right, Tina? And yeah, I agree, though. <laughs> I don't think I yeah. said it, but yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I, but yeah, you're right. It occurred at this weird time where, um, yeah, there, there was no scripture being written. So... Yeah, because prophecy totally dried up. That was a dry spell of prophecy. There was between, um, was it Malachi and then John the Baptist, there was no prophets. Yeah. So that and, was know, a huge time. Yeah, no, and that, that's kind of the time of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. You know, it was just, that was, you know, that time. And so sadly, you know, some people maybe were looking for something, you know, looking for the Messiah or looking for, you know, something you know, when it wasn't time for it. And I think that's maybe a warning that we have to be careful of is, you know, we can't be too anxious for something that we will accept anything and be deceived. Exactly. And so it, is it an interesting book? It's interesting. Is it important in historical context? It is important because all Jews at that time probably knew the book of Enoch. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the Bible ropes it in at times because those were concepts, language, things that those people were used to. But yeah, it's not speaking of the book of Enoch as a fact for everything within it. And I mean, it's just like if someone's looking back at our time and they see we're quoting Star Wars, you know, we use Star Wars to explain Bible concepts, things like that. Are we saying Star Wars is truth? Star Wars is right? No. But Star Wars is a fact of this period. Everybody knows Star Wars. So let us use it as an example because everybody understands that. And that's kind of what the Book of Enoch was at that time. Yeah. Okay. I oh, Scott Webb. Oh, scroll down. Well, okay. So we have a comment from Scott Webb. We have a, we have a few here, actually. So but, but Scott has a point that I want to okay. get to right away. <laughs> um, so it's like Scott Webb mentions uh, Michael Heiser. He says... Um, he argues that watchers being angels who took the daughters produced Nephilim, but don't have conclusive support. But um, yeah, so like Michael Heiser is an extremely smart guy. I love watching his videos. And he's one of these guys like he's writing so much. And he's definitely a big advocate for Book of Enoch. 
um, some of the concepts in it. But even Michael Heiser says, don't accept the Book of Enoch as doctrine. He says, no, you know, he, he recognizes there's lots of inconsistencies with the Bible, recognizes nobody claims it to be an inspired book, you know, dangerous as his time. So, yeah, uh, you can always check out, he's doing annotated versions of the Book of Enoch right now, so you can learn more about the context um, that it provides for the Bible, again, so you understand what some of those people were thinking. But yeah, again, he doesn't even advocate that it should be a canonical book. Yes, I agree. And I, I agree with your comment. And, you know, Patriarchs and Prophets is a great book. And I think that it also um, helps us to understand exactly what you're saying. Um, so anyways, are there more comments? Oh, yeah. So yes. Scott Webb. Yeah. So we have a, a question from Scott. It says, is the book of Jasher available like the book of Enoch to be read? What I'll say, Scott, is I found it online, but I don't know if it's truly the Book of Jasher. <laughs> um, if you look up the Book of Jasher online, I think there's a website called um, Ancient Tech or um, something like Ancient Text, something along those lines, or Scripture, or and it just it basically has every like religious book of every faith um, ever, and so they just try to provide you know people you know all resources from you know the quran to the bible to all sorts of religious texts and so in their library they have the book of jasher and i read part of it and i was like i wonder if this is really the book of jasher or if this is i don't know <laughs> somebody else's version or or what it was interesting um but yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't know where exactly to find it. i don't know jay or wendy if you know any more about that I, I just think you do have a lot of these non-canonical books that maybe that attempt it. to fill the gap. And, and you know, so people might later on say, oh, we need to have a book of Joshua to write it, and people think it's that, but yeah, I don't think that's... And and one of the important things to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, the, the Bible has been really well maintained because it is so inspired. These... I know with I don't know all the specifics, but I know that with some of the other books that are purportedly, you know, these texts that are kind of talked about here and there uh, and questioned about, there are different many of them. There are different versions that exist, and nobody really knows or it's debated what is really um, the right version or not. And there's I know with some of them there are some significant differences between what's some of the texts that have been found out there. And so that, I think, is something that has to be taken into consideration as well, that, you know, part of what is so special and sacred and unique about the Bible is that it has been so immensely well-maintained over the years, and, and the books of the Bible have. And, you know, we've seen that because of scrolls that have been found at different time periods that, you know, that show that it's really well-maintained. So... Absolutely. So Judith is asking, is America in Bible end time prophecy? Great yes. question. <laughs> <laughs> My answer is Next yes. question. <laughs> Can you yes, prove it, Tina? You got to convince well, me. Uh, do you, I'm sorry. I don't mean to steal anything. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's just so clear. Um, when it comes to Bible prophecy, that this is just why I love the Bible is, you know, um, like we were reading earlier in Isaiah 46, 10, where, you know, God says he declares the end from the beginning and things that are not seen as though they were because God knows the future. And he knew about America in the Bible. And I think you see the United States so clearly in the Bible in Revelation 13, um, getting close down to the time of the end. To me, that's where you see what I believe is the, the, um, you know, America, um, mm -hmm. basically when we're coming down to the time of the end, you know, there is a, a beast power that's been prophesied. That's going to be the big world power. Um, um, you, you know, I believe it's the same beast in Daniel chapter seven. Um, but then it says that in revelation chapter 13, um, in verse 11, it says, and be I beheld and another beast came up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth, which will there, there, therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Um, to me, that's pretty clear that th this would be the United States because um, the first thing it says is that the beast comes out of the earth. 
Now, every other beast, like you read in uh, Daniel chapter 7, they all come out of the water. And if you read later in, in the book of Revelation, it says that waters represent people and nations. And so from, you know, widely populated areas. But where do we see a nation that becomes a worldwide power, especially worldwide military power, that comes from an, a land that's not densely populated, that's basically just Earth? I mean, that's to me, that's obviously the United States. Um, and, you know, it, um, some interesting things uh, that define it. And it says um, that basically. And so it looks like a lamb, right? Yeah, it looks like a lamb. So it has this image that it's, you know, you know, Christian or good or kind, but it has this side to it that's, you know, very vicious. And so, um, you know, I do think that in the end of time, we're going to see you know, the United States and this beast power joining forces to enforce um, the, the mark of the beast, which again, I personally believe that's going to be the Sunday law, uh, which opposes the fourth commandment of God, you know, which God, you know, says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So um, it just imposes. And we already have, we already have Sunday laws on the books in certain states, and we already had major attempts to impose Sunday laws nationwide. So not crazy these things have been attempted and it's just will it happen in our lifetime again yeah and even in 1888 the sunday law almost became a national sunday law it was only because somebody you know appealed to congress and said hey this is against the first amendment we can't be having this um but yeah back in 1888 like it was it was uh, basically were they going to sign it into legislation um but Thank God <laughs> they did it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's people that are upholding the truth and, you know, trying to have religious liberty um, where people can have a freedom of conscience. And I think that that's really the the battle that's going on is a battle of, you know, your your right to choose. And so... Um, mm -hmm. anyway. It's interesting that Revelation 13 talks about uh, there being two horns. And horn means power, rulers, authorities, and... and um, in prophecy speak and mm -hmm. in america you know we've always have this dichotomy of you know separation of church and state for example or we have even like just two political parties always mm -hmm. it seems like you know first we had the democrats and the whigs whig party collapses immediately replaced by the republicans so it's to me it's a very apt symbol for the united states mm -hmm. and um and then there's other verses that are not as clear about the United States, referring to it sort of as this prophet. Uh, I think referring to just the the level of of, of Christianity we have. There's a, a very uh, spirit oriented, a very um, a very eager Christianity that may be a bit misled at times, right? I don't want to call out certain groups, or whatever, but you know these concepts of you know people really want to have a true religion with God, want to have a real experience that they think, you know, is, is bringing down that fire from heaven, but is really not of God's origin. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's so important to really go back and understand, yeah, what's pagan, what's Christian? Love that first question. Yeah, definitely. So, Dan is asking, Revelation 10, 9 to 10, what is the little scroll Lamb's book and Bible. Okay, if you or, guys don't or mind, or is he maybe asking if it's the Bible? Yeah, I think that's sure. that's what I understood. That's no, okay. Is that okay if I grab this one? Because I really like this question a lot. Go for it. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting um, when it comes to Revelation chapter ten um, because this is kind of a random plug-in that happens in the middle of a big event. So if you read in Revelations, uh, Revelation chapters 8 and 9, you see it's the beginning of the seven trumpets. So um, basically, you know, the, the seven seals are opening and then the last seal opens. And at, as the last seal opens um, in, in chapter 8, then um, God calls for seven trumpets to blow. And the, this takes us through a, a line of... Um, you know, devastations and things that happen on the earth that are to happen before the coming of Jesus. Now, um, it's interesting because um, eight and nine, you get through the first six trumpets and then there's the seventh trumpet that needs to sound, but then 
chapter 10 happens. And so this event is kind of telling you, hey, near right before the last trumpet blows, right very soon before Jesus comes, this event is going to take place. And so um, there's very something very interesting in that says in the chapter that tells you what this little book is. And if you go to Revelation chapter 10, verse 4, it says something very specific about um, the message here given by the angel um, that tells you what this little book is. So if you go to Revelation chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So it's talking about that this time, this message um, from this angel that appears in Revelation 10, and um, he utters seven thunders and gives a little book to, to John. And this, um, but with this, the message basically, because an angel in the Bible is basically a messenger. It's not necessarily a literal angel, just like, you know, the three angels messages of Revelation 14. It's not a literal angel, you know, proclaiming with a loud voice these things. It's God's people giving a message. And so there's a message here in Revelation 10. And part of that message is seven thunders being uttered, but those things are sealed up. Now, what is the one place in the Bible where God says something is sealed until the time of the end? If you don't know, I'm going to tell you because it's in the book of Daniel. If you look in Daniel chapter 12, it reads, um, and I'll just first time sake, I won't read it, but I'll just tell you where it is. In uh, Daniel chapter 12 in verses, um, sorry, I wrote it down. Uh, four and nine, both of those times, basically God says, seal up the writings of this, uh, of this prophecy for they are till the time of the end. And so basically this little book that's given to John is the book of Daniel and specifically those prophecies that, you know, Daniel really didn't understand. Like Daniel finally understood revel uh, the prophecies of Daniel eight. You see that in, in chapter 10. But the prophecies of Daniel 11 and 12, he really doesn't understand. And, and God says, this is sealed up to the time of the end. So it's not until... Was, was, was it the book of Daniel or was it the book of Revelation? Like Daniel was given the book of Revelation. So and the, that was the one the that was sealed book, up. <laughs> let me just make this clear. Make sure it's clear. The little book that's sealed up is the book of Daniel. And I believe that is the book that the angel gives to John to eat up, that in his mouth will be sweet as honey, but in his belly it will be bitter. Because um, this is a message given to God's people near the end of time, right before the time of the end. And we know that um, the time of the end is after the 2300 days of Daniel 8.14, because it says, unto 2300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And that's the last day of the Jewish year, the day of atonement. And so... Um, it's at the end of the 2300 day prophecy, which, um, if you <laughs> go into Daniel nine, you'll know that that begins at the pro proclamation of, you know, the freeing of God's people to rebuild Jerusalem, which happened in 457, um, BC and it ends in 1844. So basically there's going to be a time where God's people near the time of the end are going to eat up this little book it's going to be sweet in their mouth but in their stomach is going to be bitter but the last thing that the angel calls john to do it says thou must prophesy again so there's going to be a special message from the book of daniel that god's people are supposed to give during this uh, time of the end before jesus comes and if you read the book of daniel we've now can understand it based on the prophecies of Revelation, um, as you understand both the books of Daniel and Revelation together, because you really need both books to understand these prophecies. So, in a nutshell, <laughs> that little book of Daniel, or excuse me, Revelation 10, is the book of Daniel, um, because that's what was sealed up until the time of the end. And um, just as the seven thunders were sealed, but it, um, at, for, at God's people at first, you know, their first understanding, they thought this was sweet, but it ended up bitter but then god's people then have to process you know the truth of the book of daniel the truth of the book of revelation and um and prophesy again and give a message of prophecy before the coming of christ uh do you guys have any other thoughts on that so we have a comment from anthony cox and he says um his first comment but john's book is not sealed because the time was soon yes. um i think that's a really so, good point 
And, oh, and back sorry. to what you're saying. Yeah, no, and that's true because if you read in Revelation chapter 22, and that was another point I was saying is the book of Revelation is not sealed. Um, if you look in Revelation at the last chapter, 22 and verse 10, it says, don't seal up this book because the time is at hand. And so, um, like you're saying, you know, Revel the book of Revelation is not the little book. It's not the Bible. Um, it's the only thing that's sealed up is that book of, of Daniel. So anyways, that's just my, <laughs> my thoughts. William is asking, in Genesis 6-3, before the flood, God said man shall live to be 120 years old. Why didn't we see that happen until generations later? All right, so there's a couple different parts to this question. And actually, I would say up front, it's, it's not um, something everybody agrees on as to what this verse means. Like there's at least two different understandings. So one is God saying, I'm cutting everybody's lives short. People aren't going to live longer than 120 years. And there's another interpretation, which I'll get into also. So if, if the truth is the second interpretation, then that might explain why there seems to be a delay. But first, let's assume actually God does say, I'm going to be shortening people's lives. Um, and there's you know some good reason to think okay that's what god's talking about because when we well first let's look at the verse it's genesis 6 let's start at uh verse verse six, verse one we'll start at verse one genesis 6 verse one and it reads now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them next verse that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Okay, so there's mingling of daughters of God, sons of men. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So, question is like, who's this man God's referring to? Um, what does it mean striving with them in the spirit? But let's assume for right now that it's it's actually the lifespan of a person. Um, if you look at the genealogy in Genesis, you see people were living 900 years plus easily. Adam and we have uh, Methuselah who lived the longest, I think 969 years. Um, Noah himself lived, I think, 600 something years or no, or no maybe more like 700 so, but even with Noah, like, let's say he was 700 years. Now, that's a lot shorter than, um, than his grandfather. And if we jump forward to Genesis 47, verse 28, we see that Jacob died at the age of 147. So, Jacob, we're, we just go a few generations. We have Abraham, we have his son Jacob. Jacob's now, uh, sorry, Abraham, Isaac. And then now we get to Jacob. He's 147 years old. His son Joseph. Oh, we even have a little graphic here that shows it all. Um, so you can see Jared lived a long time. Methuselah lived 969. Noah lived, oh, 950. Wow. Okay, so Shem, his son 600. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, and you just see people starting to die even before their great-grandfathers before them. Abraham was 175. Yeah, Isaac, if we get his age. But by the time we get to Jacob now, he's 147, and Joseph dies at the age of 110. Bam. Now all of a sudden we actually are seeing recorded someone's less than 120 years. That was Joseph. And, and I'll just recognize there are different timelines. If you're looking at the Septuagint, uh, the Greek version of the Bible that Jesus had during his day, that one has people living um, different. Like the the... It, 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 it works out differently. But I agree, I think the one that we tend to have today is the correct timeline. There, there's good textural evidence that that's accurate. But what's interesting is we, we get to, there's a couple aberrations where we have Aaron. Aaron, uh, Numbers 33, 39, says he lived to be 123 years old. Deuteronomy 34, 7 says Moses lived to be 120 years old. So right on the money, Moses was 120. 
and then Joshua lived to be 110 years old. But what's interesting about these people is they all were part of the Israelites who were supposed to go into the land of Canaan. And in fact, they were supposed, these three especially, were supposed to live and enter. And Joshua, in fact, did. But, but because of uh, sins, Moses and Aaron died just before the Israelites entered the land. But God had kept them alive during the 40 years when the Israelites were sort of waiting around for this whole sinful generation to die off. But God kept Joshua, kept Moses, kept Aaron, and then another one, Caleb, who's, I believe we don't have his age when he died. Uh, he kept all those alive. So this is a unique exception. And I don't think God was necessarily saying, oh, because I said people live 120 years, that, you know, therefore I'll let Moses die at 120. That's not what was going on, I, I believe. And why do I say this? Because if you look at... Um, oh, where'd it go? Uh-huh. Psalm, Psalm 90, verse 10. Psalm 90, verse 10. It says, And days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years. It's interesting. So you have this verse that's a little bit in tension with the 120 years that we see earlier. Granted, this one is not a decree of God, but maybe it's just recognition of how people are actually living. But we see even this today. Most people live to be in their 70s or 80s. And we have just a few people who might live beyond that, which is actually interesting that still the longest people we see live to about 120. I think we recently had the oldest person on record die at the age of 122. Yeah. So it, it is interesting. So that's what I'm saying. I'm, it's possible that that's one interpretation. God said, I'm going to let people live 120 years. But, um, well, okay. But so why did it take time to evolve? Uh, you know, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, um, Beloved, do not forget that one thing, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Like, for God, God has a totally different concept of time. So when God says something's going to happen, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, you know, the next second, the next moment, in terms of our time as we perceive it. You know, there could be a long delay, but even to God, that's like nothing. Um, but God is not slack concerning His promises, as we, we go on to read. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness. So, God is faithful. God did deliver. If, if you think God said he's, he's going to shorten people's lifespans, well, he did deliver on that eventually. And, um, you know, if we just look at even uh, other historical events in the Bible, we have one where in Isaiah, Isaiah 39, um, we have this King Hezekiah who takes the Babylonians on a tour of Israel, doesn't tell them about God, and he just glorifies himself. And God says, because of this, the Babylonians are going to come back and they're going to invade your your Judea and take everybody away, and it's going to be devastating. But don't worry, Hezekiah, is not going to happen in your lifetime. It's like, whew, phew, good. That's fine, God, because it won't happen to me. But it didn't happen right away after he died. There were still several generations before this prophecy came to pass. Why did it take forever? That's how God works. He waits for the right time. He lets things play out. Um, God doesn't necessarily intervene in immediately. He lets things naturally take the course at times. But here's another theory of what that 120 days means. If we go back to that Genesis verse, um, verse 6, or sorry, chapter 6, verse 3, says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Who is he struggling with? He's struggling with man. He's, and we just heard that daughters of men married, uh, the sons of God married the daughters of men. Like he's, It could be he's talking about the people of that particular time who were extremely wicked. Because if we keep reading now to verse 4, it says, there were giants on the earth in those days and afterwards. And then we go into verse 5. It says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man 
was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he's still talking about the people, when he's saying man, he's talking about the world in, in general at that time. They were evil, just thinking evil all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he had made them. Uh, verse 7, so God says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing. So, so why do we think when God says, I'm going to shorten life of man to 120 years, he's talking about people in general going forward, but then when we get to just a few verses later, we're, we're understanding is he's going to destroy the antediluvians, the people at the time of the flood. If we read this verse consistently, he's talking about the same man. The same man he's going to give 120 years is the same man he's going to destroy with the flood. And if we look at it, uh, we, we understand that Noah started building the flood around the time before he had his kids. So it, it's not exactly clear the timeline when Noah exactly started, but we're told he was 500 years when he first begat Shem. This is in Genesis 5 verse 32. Uh, so he first has his first kid when he's 500 years old. And it looks like he built the ark over about a hundred years. And he is, you know, ministering to the people during this time. He's building a giant ark, telling people it's going to rain. They're like, you're crazy. It's never rained before. What's a flood? We've never seen a flood before. So he's probably drawing lots of attention. God's giving people warning, giving them an opportunity to get in that ark and be saved. Because that's the type of person God is. And they didn't. So... That's how I more understand what is this 120 years. I really think it's God saying, I'm going to give 120 years for these people to turn around, to get onto the boat, to get onto the method, me, the, yeah, the method of salvation I provided for them. And, you know, if they don't, then they will be destroyed at, after that 120 years. So, God came right on time. It was a time prophecy. So, uh, so those are two options, two ways of looking at it. Hope that explains it. But, you know, do you have anything to add on that? You're oh, muted you're again. Oh no! <laughs> the meme of the year last year, right? <laughs> twenty twenty. You're, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you're on mute. I tell my students all day, you're on mute. <laughs> and I'm on mute. Um, I don't want to cut you guys short if um, if there is something else you wanted to say. Nope. Okay. I think I covered well, everything. <laughs> Unless you, right, no, I hope you got other insights. <laughs> no, I, 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 I always have thought about that verse and I, I think it's really interesting. I really think it's interesting that Moses is the only one that's 120. I think that's sort of significant as far as like prophetically speaking, um, because mm. he's kind of the next one that we see. I mean, there was obviously Abraham, but like, I feel like Moses fulfilled a lot of things that God had promised as far as he's like a type of Christ and that he delivers God's people. And when like you talk about Moses in the New Testament, you know, it says God's people were baptized into Moses when they walked through the Red Sea. And now, you know, we're baptized into Christ. Mm -hmm. And so like Moses kind of encapsulated the old covenant, whereas, you know, later on, Jesus gives us the new covenant. Um, by his blood which is you know writing god's law in our hearts so anyways i think you know that whole 120 years is, is just so fascinating and i think there's just this to me there's a connection to um the fulfillment of it in moses but really what i think too i i, I kind of more lean towards you know i don't think god is saying like everybody gets 120 years to live no it's not, that's not what it's saying and but and i do think god was saying you know people after the flood are gonna live you know around that time frame i think that's kind of what more god's leaning towards because people are living to be you know in the 900s and you know then mm -hmm. their lifespan got cut short dr dramatically and i think god did that in his mercy uh, <laughs> more than anything just because you know so that evil wouldn't continue or become so rampant you know at least um the evil people can you know sadly but die off and I, the reason I think you see that to me in the book of, or in the Bible is, you know, when you look at the life of Moses, it's very interesting. Um, and this is why I say that because 
in the Bible, 40 years always equals a generation. And there's a verse that um, specifies mm. that. Um, I thought it was in the, I'm pretty sure it was in the book of, in the book of Psalms 95 verse 10, it says, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation, you know, and it was talking about, you know, the Israelites when they were in the, the wilderness for 40 years. But what you see in the life of Moses that's kind of interesting is the first 40 years of his life he spent in Egypt being trained and educated in the Egyptian you know, culture, which was pagan and it was false. It was a false system of worship. And then God calls to, you know, God pierces his heart and, you know, Moses feels this burden, you know, to, to help his people, but he doesn't know how, cause he realized he knows he's a Hebrew, but mm-hmm. he's kind of torn as to what to do. And so, you know, he ends up killing one of the, um, taskmasters and the Pharaoh finds out about and he runs for his life. And then he's out in, you know, the wilderness for 40 years, you know, being basically a shepherd and being in a sense, re-educated in the, in the knowledge of the true God. And then God in the, you know, the next 40 years, he spends leading his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness for those 40 years until they reach the promised land. And so to me, it's kind of like this, God gives us, you know, chances in a way, like, um, you know, the first 40 years, that generation of his life, he spent in darkness. The next 40 years he spent um, in learning. And then the last 40 years he spent in leading and his ministry. And so, I don't know, to me, there's just something so significant about that. Um, I think that, you know, God is so good and merciful and he's always trying to teach us something um, in these stories. And so to me, in a way, I, what I feel like God is saying is like, you know, in your life, you know, in your time past, you might've been raised one way, but God, you know, if you're willing to listen, God will intervene and he'll re-educate you and he'll give you time to learn about him. And once, you know, you come to a knowledge of the truth and you accept it, God will also give you an opportunity then to share your truth, um, the truth that God has given you um, in his word. And I think that that's such an important thing as far as, you know, what God is maybe kind of teaching us in those 120 years. It's, you know, if God's giving you time, it's not for the purpose of you just doing whatever what god wants to do is um you know find you <laughs> educate you and train you into um somebody who's ready to to share his truth and his love and be ready for um to be ready to go home and to to be a citizen of heaven because you know it's god's will that everyone is saved um so i don't know is Amen. that Amen. <laughs> i don't know if you guys oh, see that as well I, I love that. The, I mean, I think we could go on and on in the sense of there's probably so many different parallels between Noah and and, uh, and Moses. And mm-hmm. in fact, like Moses started off in a little boat and he's pulled uh, out of it. In an ark. And, yeah. Yeah, a little ark. And, and yeah, you're right. Maybe Noah's, I mean, Moses's life was sort of like that period of 120 years that the antediluvians had with Noah to, to sort of minister to them and provide them a way out of out of their situation that they were going to have. Yeah. And I think too, like when it came to the antediluvians, you know, a lot of them started out, you know, believing Moses or Noah and, you know, started, you know, maybe even, you know, listening to Noah preaching the gospel, but they just kind of were like, eh, you know, it, this doesn't really seem to be working out. I'd rather spend my time doing other things and, you know, doubt creeped in. And I think that that's kind of the difference you see between God's you know, true people like Moses, as opposed to people who don't follow the truth, which is, you know, everybody gets a chance. You know, God speaks to everybody in some way, whether it's through nature, whether it's just the Holy Spirit speaking to their heart. You know, I, I believe God speaks to everybody in some way um, on this planet. And um, obviously it's it's wonderful if you have the privilege of, you know, learning the, the Bible, which you know, contains all the truth, but I think, you know, everybody has a chance and it's always God's will to save and to heal and to, um, and, you know, basically to, to give you salvation. That's what God wants to mm-hmm. do. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants us to be saved so desperately. Um, Amen. And so, you know, I, I think I, what I just see so clearly is, you know, the antediluvians, those who were lost in the flood, as opposed to, uh, you know, Noah, as well as Moses, who were saved from the waters, um, that, 
you know, it, it, there's just this difference of, you know, am I going to choose, you know, keep my faith? Am I going to stay faithful, you know, to the end? Or am I going to get distracted and get bored or, you know, start having doubts and just kind of, you know, slowly drifting away from the truth until it's just too late? Um, because, you know, even if, you know, Jesus doesn't come in our lifetime, Jesus will come and, you know, his reward is with him. And, and only those that have put their trust in God and have a saving relationship with him are going to, to um, be able to have access to the kingdom of life. And so, um, yeah, I just think it's so important that we learn from these things. And, you know, we make a decision every day, you know, who do I want to serve? Do I want to serve myself or do I want to serve God? And am I going to educate myself in the knowledge of the truth or am I going to, you know, basically, you know, when you're just not studying God, um, you're in a sense educating yourself in the things of this world. Like, how do I make more money? How do I be entertained? You know, things like that. Those are just distractions. And I think, you know, it's so important that we, you know, keep our eyes focused on, on our Savior. And um, again, I think that's so important why we're, we need to study God's Word in the Bible because it just keeps um, our relationship alive and fresh with Him. Exactly. We just want to thank you all again for joining us and um, watching our show tonight. We're sorry that tonight wasn't totally live exactly, but um, we do uh, want to thank God that, you know, we did have a full year of Bible questions to choose from. And we want to thank God for all of you who have submitted questions and tuned in. We really appreciate you as our viewers. We couldn't do it without you. So um, at this time, we just want to, again, remind everybody that if you have questions that you'd like to submit, go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live, and go ahead and submit them there. Or you can always go to our website um, on Bible Ask, <laughs> as well as um, our YouTube page and our Facebook page. Uh, you can submit questions there as well. And again, if you have questions or comments, Go ahead, put them down in the comment section. We'd love to hear from you all. And um, remind everybody that we are going to resume our regular live show again next week, Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we just want to wish you all a blessed new year again. And um, take care. God bless you.